happy faces, made it through the snow and the bad roads that are getting better by the end of the week. It's amazing to think like all of this, it'll all be gone. It's being supposed to be in the 50s again next week, right? It'll all be gone. That's just amazing to think about. Some people are happy about that. Some people like the snow. I won't judge you either way. I like shoveling snow. It's something I have, but I like to see it go away too. So, um, We do have a few announcements this morning. We have a really big event coming up on January 21st at 6 p.m. It is the award ceremony for the Men's Fantasy Football League that has been going on here. I know who was the winner. I mean, it's so random. If you knew this person that won, I mean, you would say, how in the world did that happen? I mean, he has no, no strategy, no anything, but he won. It was God's will. Yeah, it, was a, it is a fantasy. That's very fitting. But what an awesome thing, you guys. If you want to come hang out, there's going to be pizza. That's January again, 21st at 6 p.m. Um, we do have the Christmas gifts for servant senders. Some of you guys have already done that. You see the presents out there, servant senders, the ministry that we support down in Mexico, um, the students and their families down there. We get to give them gifts, and it's an incredible blessing, those guys. I, I had the opportunity to go there one time, one Christmas, I mean, and they are fired up about it. They have a big party. It's a great time, and you guys get to be a part of that. You buy them gifts. You can talk to Ty and Lori, and this is, we have about one more week, so they need the gifts in by January 15th, so if you uh, haven't joined that, I think there's maybe some spots, I'm not exactly sure, but talk to Ty and Lori, and they can always use more stuff, I mean, they love getting uh, anything down there, so um, the financial peace course begins this Tuesday, or excuse me, not this Tuesday, Tuesday, January 17th, 6.30 to 8.30. For those of you that don't know, that's Dave Ramsey's program. You might have heard of him on the radio, Financial Peace. This is a great program to help us get, you know, be good stewards of all the blessings that God gives us in this country, to be debt-free, to live in this free way. And uh, Financial Peace course, they're going to be doing that here. And it's a nine-week course. It's a hundred bucks for the books and the registration. And Scott and, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm Robin, you can slap me later or whatever. It's just senility coming on. Anyway, uh, Scott and Robin are putting that on. And Scott just told me this morning that um, you can pay for that up to the day that you start the course um, on the 17th. But ideally, you know, you want to get that taken care of beforehand. You know, procrastination's not not usually a good thing. Um Home groups will be starting up after the new year, and if you're interested in that, there's a sign-up sheet in the back, and you can sign up um, to do a home Bible study on Sunday evening. So that's the announcements um, for today. So you guys want to join me in some prayer? We'll just get started here. So Lord, um, we just are grateful to be here this morning. I thank you for all of those who came that, that did brave the streets or whatever, and and made it here because they love you, because they want to hear from you and commune with you and your people. And I pray for your blessing on this fellowship, Lord, and and thank you that with all the other distractions and and things we could be doing in the world today that, that we've chosen to be here with you, and thank you for your spirit that you've given us that leads us to you. Lord, we lift up those 
other churches in the area that are also meeting that are that are lifting up your name and your gospel in this community, and we pray for your blessing on them also. We lift up our missionaries that we have the privilege of support here, those in uh, um, the Ukraine, and as I mentioned, the guys down in Mexico, um, the Morocco mission, and we lift that up to you too. We know there's been some struggles there recently, and God, particularly this morning, um, Sean brought it to my attention, Pastor Sean, that they're just dealing with some hard things in Uganda, and we want to lift them up in prayer to you also, and pray for your continued provision and your guidance in that ministry, that you would raise up godly men and women to, to be a part of that ministry and to continue the great work that Beverly and Jess started there, that you started there through them. And um, we just lift up that ministry to you also. Lord, I pray for the families and the marriages in our fellowship and um, that they would be strong and that they would be a witness to um, the community around us, Lord, that um, our committed marriages, our our sacrificial love of our children and of our spouses would truly serve as a witness um, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers. I pray you would um, just bless all the kids in this fellowship, Lord, and that as they grow and mature and in you, Lord, that you would use these kids just to continue the work here and, and in other ministries around the country or around the world, Lord. God, I lift up uh, just this message to you this morning. I just pray for your Holy Spirit. We want to we wanna hear from you as we get into your word, and we pray, God, that you would uh, lead us into all truth. Just lead us into um, your will and um, give us a greater picture of who you are today and what your will is for our lives individually and as a church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in the book of Philippians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. You can turn there with me if you like. The first verse of the book of Philippians, kind of towards the back. You can just flip through and you'll get to it. But I'll begin by reading um, in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me with grace. Partakers with me of grace, excuse me. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now this letter, this epistle, if you will, to this church at Philippi, to these 
Philippian believers, was written by the Apostle Paul around A.D. 50. Now, that's only just, you know, about a decade or so after the resurrection of Christ. So this is an early letter written to an early church set up there in Philippi by the Apostle Paul, along with Silas, and possibly the, uh, you know, Luke, the physician, was with them too. But Luke in uh, Acts 16, he gives us a short definition of the city of Philippi. He says, it was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, Philippi was an ancient Greek city that actually took its name from King Philip II. Some of you history buffs may realize that King Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. So it's a historical city named after this King Philip. It's situated on the northern coast of the Aegean Sea, kind of to the west of Greece, in between Turkey and Greece on that really strategic land route that was there. So it was a very strategic city, and nearby there were these gold mines. That's why King Philip possibly named it after himself. It was an important, rich city because of the gold that would come into there. And what we know from the ruins that are there in Philippi today, that even though it was a small city, it had these grand buildings that really, you know, that rivaled the the great cities of the ancient world, you know, Constantinople. And so it was, a, it was a prosperous city. It was a rich city. It was a strategic city. And, you know, one that, again, was the first European city that Paul and uh, his companions went to evangelize. Lastly, though, one thing that we want to think about, this was a Gentile city through and through. Philippi, there's no evidence that there was even a synagogue there. That there was a very, if there was a Jewish presence there, it was very minimal. And, you know, that's just something to consider. Acts 16, um, again, recounts the uh, um, time when Paul first visited there with Silas. And it's this really incredible kind of series of events that he goes through. And so I just wanted to recount kind of, you know, what happened and how he came to have a relationship with these Philippian believers. So, um, First off, we see him, he gets to the city, and they go to what's called a place of prayer. Now, this was something that the Jews would set up, these places usually, always by water, um, in a city or in an area where there was no synagogue. And they would be by water because they had these uh, rituals of cleansing, and it was a place where the Jews would gather and kind of, you know, worship God and go through the the scriptures and this kind of thing, and... um, that's where they're heading down to. Now, this particular place of prayer in Philippi, we only see women there. And that's kind of interesting, too. I, there's no men there. It's just, you know, what we kind of get the impression is, if you read Acts 16, again, there's a small group of women at this place of prayer, Jewish women worshiping God, and one of which is, is talked about is Lydia. And Lydia is a woman that's defined as a seller of purple, and one who has a, a, a devotion to God, that she's a godly woman, she's a seller of purple. And the, that seller of purple kind of gives us an idea of her social status. Okay, we know in the ancient world, purple dye was very difficult to produce, it was very valuable, it was very expensive, and we can kind of assume that Lydia was a wealthy woman. She was a Jewish, wealthy woman who had a devotion to God, and she 
is um, down there as Paul and uh, Silas are preaching, evangelizing to them, sharing the gospel with them. And in verse uh, 14 of Acts 16, it's this beautifully simple statement, and it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. And I just think that's, that's really cool. You know, there's somebody over here talking, and, and sometimes we can hear, but we're not really hearing. But the Lord says, opened her heart to pay attention to the things that Paul was saying. And I think that's, I know certainly what I need a lot of the time, is for the Lord just to open my heart to pay attention. And not just in a Bible study, so if you're, you know, tuning me out right now, that's okay. I'm not going to put you on. It's not, but to open your heart to pay attention to the world around you to the needs of others around you, to what God's doing in your life and in the lives of other people, to open your heart to pay attention. And uh, I pray that is the case for myself, for all of us, that we could have that, um, that heart that we want to pay attention to what God's doing. So um, the first Christian convert in, in Europe, we're told, is this godly woman, Lydia. Now again, she was undoubtedly a woman of means, um, and then we also get this picture because it wasn't just her that got saved. It was, it was her whole household. Now, so we get this picture. She's, she's a woman of means, she's, she's, and then she's got this influence over her household to where they all kind of follow her example and are saved. And then we also see she invites Paul and Silas to stay with her and, you know, you think, okay, well, she obviously has some authority over her home as well, right? And we, we never see any mention of her husband or anything. And it's just kind of, just interesting, just to kind of rough out who she was and, and possibly what she was like. So he stays with Lydia. They accept her invitation. They stay with her. And then they begin to go out and evangelize on every Sabbath. Um, similar to what they had begun with at the place of prayer. And we kind of get the, intention, the, the impression, too, that they're going throughout the city. Now, they begin to be harassed by this young slave girl who was possessed by a demon. And we're told that in the scripture. She had the ability to divine the future. She was like a fortune teller. And so it's this young girl, and, and you've got to imagine she was a slave girl. She could have been from one of the barbarian tribes in the north. She could have been, you know, painted up with face paint and feathers out of her hair and maybe some crazy skimpy clothes, maybe a big thing. I don't know. I mean, they, you know, you've got to picture like a witch doctor type of, of girl is following them around. And her masters had made money by bringing people to her so she could tell their fortune. And she begins to follow him, harass him, and say, this is a quote from what she would say, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now that's pretty right on, isn't it? I mean, that's a right on statement. But you've got to imagine, again, this is, this is a, a demon speaking through this poor young girl. She probably looks crazy, and God's really concerned about who it is that's witnessing for him and, and, and that type of thing. That's why Jesus Christ handpicked the 12 apostles. That's why when he rose from the dead, he only revealed himself to a select group of people. Because, again, it's not just the message, it's also the messenger. If we, you know, if, uh, let me think of somebody. Well, if one of our 
you know, politicians would come in here that you have a certain, you know, idea of their character and their life and they started telling you the gospel. I mean, in the back of your head, you're like, this guy's telling me this stuff. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't have the impact. So in any case, but also I don't think she was saying this in a way that was edifying. I think it was in this mocking, demonic kind of tone and maybe she's, you know, she's not saying these men are the servants of the Most High God. You know, she's not, I mean, she's probably like, these men are the servants of the Most High God in this really, like, sarcastic, mocking, really ridiculous way. And, like, finally, we see that Paul gets really annoyed by this. And he turns around, he says, come out of her, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, she's, she's normal. And her masters are really upset by this because her profitability is gone. Now she's, now she's a liability, whereas they used to make money off of her. Now they have to feed her and they can't, you know, and their livelihood's gone. And we know in our society particularly, if you want to really make someone upset, mess with their money, mess with their bank account, right? I mean, we can sit here and have discussions about ideas and philosophies and the gospel and all this stuff, and we, but when you start costing someone cash, you're going to make some enemies. So the first thing these guys do, they grab Paul, and they rush him be- before the magistrates, before the rulers of the city of Philippi. Again, these distinguished men and they're, you know, these Gentile Romans. Another, just a side note, uh, Philippi was the scene of a great Roman battle the Battle of Philippi, and it had been settled by a lot of those war heroes. So there was a, a historical, you know, so you got to imagine the leaders of this great Roman city, these elite, you know, possibly ex-generals or whatever, or, you know, they lead them before these guys, and the first words out of their mouth, the, the owners of this slave girl, is, these men are Jews. And like I said, there's no synagogue in this city, apparently, and, you know, it's okay, like Lydia, you know, she's kind of well off, but she must mind her business. She just goes down by the river. But, you know, they're not crazy about Jews. And, you know, so we get this idea, these men are Jews. And not only are they Jews, they're disrupting our city, and they're teaching things that are contrary to the things that we believe in. And they strip their clothes, and they take them, and they beat them, and they throw them in jail. And, you know, not a good... Um, you know, if you, again, I love the stories that we have in the scriptures because if you, if you just stopped right there, you'd say, that was a failure. I mean, that was, a, that was, why did they do that? Why did they cast out this demon? Why did, I mean, what a bummer. But they're, so they're sitting in prison, and then we get the, uh, this, this picture, we jump to, it's midnight. So they've been in prison possibly hours and hours. It's midnight, it's quiet, it's calm. You know, those of you that have been injured, you get a cut, a a scrape, you know, a few hours late. It doesn't really hurt right when it happens. Sometimes you can kind of jump up, but later on, you know, it begins to sting. It begins to burn. You begin to be in pain, and it's really quiet. And all of a sudden, these songs, these praise songs start echoing through the prison. And you got to imagine, the prisons then were basically like a dark, dank cave. They're not like, uh, some of you guys might work out the ADX, and it's just posh, you know, the lights are on, and it's nice, and this is, it's pitch black in there, you know, you picture maybe a ray of moonlight coming through here and there, but you can't probably see the hand in front of your face, and all these other prisoners are in their cells, and they begin to hear these, these beautiful worship songs that Paul and Silas are singing to God, 
and they all know why they're in there. You know, these guys aren't criminals, and they're singing these praises to God, and it's kind of echoing through the prison, and, and, you know, I get this picture that these guys are, you know, these hardcore criminals are in this jail, and maybe for the first time in their life, they begin to um, consider their lives, consider the choices they've made. Maybe they begin to have some hope that, you know, they could be forgiven in hearing these men and, and just hearing. And, you know, so it's this very, and, and also we know that even the jailer was lulled to sleep. He was sleeping at this point. And just this peace has kind of fallen on the prison. And, you know, um, that's very rare in jail. And I just want you to know that those moments of peace, that mo- those moments of self-reflection, they come, but I've been in jail. I've been in jail more times than I can recount. You know, it's usually a place of distrust, a place of fear, a place of anxiety. And certainly there's times where you have, you know, those moments of self-reflection, like, you know, how did I end up here again, you know? But just a real quick story, it was... I was, I was in uh, San, Diego, San Diego County Jail, and I was in this huge holding cell with all these guys, and, and I was in there for some time. It was served as like a cell that um, they would bring in these busloads of convicts, and then they'd kind of disseminate them out to the bigger prisons, and so there was always people kind of coming and going. And, and, but anyway, at night, we're sleeping, and we slept on, those of you that are prison guards, you know this, and, but if you've never seen a jail, the bed is a is stainless steel slab that's it, you know, it's just a thing of stainless, and you get a little pad of foam about that big, and that's your mattress that goes on top of that. Well, you know, probably about this time, about midnight, it's really quiet, and, um, you know, I had to go use the facility, so I get up, and I did have the wherewithal to take my blanket with me, thankfully, but when I got back, my mattress was gone. So someone had stolen my mattress just in the quick time that I went to the... So, I'm laying there, so I just pretend like no big deal. You know, I get up in my cot, and I get my blanket, and I just sit there and pretend I'm asleep and wait for the next guy to go to the restroom so I can get his mattress, So, <laughs> which I did. So, I mean, that, and that's the way it goes all night long, you know. So somebody at the end of the night ends up with two mattresses, but, and someone ends up with none. I don't, I don't know. But it, it is. It's this place where you, where you sleep with one eye open. And so this is a very rare instance where, again, God's Spirit is just like coming on this place through Paul and Silas just singing these songs. And then this is also so classic how God works, this moment of peace, this moment of reflection of God's Spirit, and then out of nowhere, bam, this huge earthquake hits and shakes, the. we're told, the jail to its very foundations, their shackles fall off. The doors all fly open. You know, the jailer wakes up. He knows he's been asleep, which is a, you know, capital offense while you're watching prisoners. And he, you can't, he can't see anything. The stuff's in array. There's dust everywhere, rubble. I mean, just imagine. And he calls for some lamps to be brought in, and he sees all the doors open, and it hits him. I'm, I'm, I'm dead. I'm going to be executed for this. And he, he, you know, they wore these little short Roman swords. And I just picture, you know, he's, he's thinking about this, this great failure. And his life is just ruined by these circumstances. 
and he's about to kill himself, as you know, Romans were wont to do, out of honor, out of saying, you don't have to kill me. I know I've screwed up so bad I deserve to die. And he unsheathes his sword, and he's just about to do it, and Paul cries out, don't, don't harm yourself. We're still here. We're still here. And he runs in, and he falls down before their feet, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And I think that's, I mean, look how God just brings that from what must I do to keep my job? What must I do to not be executed for my failures? What must I do to be saved is what he comes up with. And I just love how God's working on this guy's heart. So, um, again, we saw how God worked with Lydia, but now we see how God is working on this jailer. And Paul, you know, as simple as that question is, I mean, most of us in here that I know, I mean, we've asked that question at some point. What must I do to be saved? This simple question, and Paul's answer is equally simple. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And immediately the jailer took him to his home, he washed their wounds, he fed them, and they were baptized and gave their lives to Christ. You know, Acts 16 will go on to recount how Paul and Silas were released, how they held the authorities liable. So these great magistrates and everything, they actually were humbled the day after. They had to come and apologize to Paul because they found out they were Roman citizens and what they had done was also a crime by punishing them without a trial. So Paul's time in this city, this brief time, was marked by these really these incredible supernatural events. And we see that this is, this is the foundation of the Philippian church, guys. Lydia, again, this female, Jewish, wealthy woman and her household, and this jailer, you know, obviously not a man of means, a rough guy, probably an ex-soldier, and that's how a Gentile, and that's how God starts his church. I just think it's a really, a really cool foundation because he's taking from, you know, and that's what God does with every church, right? He takes people from all walks of life. And that's really a, a unique um, attribute of Christianity overall. But I think that's a sufficient. So that kind of gives you the background of who Paul is writing this letter to. He writes the letter to of Philippians around A.D. 62, which is about 12 years after the founding of this church. So about a decade has gone by, and now he again is a prisoner in Rome. And he writes this letter to the Philippians just to express... You know, for a number of different reasons, like all of the epistles, it's been defined as the epistle of joy. And I think that's an amazing, you know, thing because, again, Paul is writing this as a prisoner in Rome. And yet he's saying, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, take joy in your trials. And the things that have happened to me are actually good, that it's good that I'm a prisoner in a Roman jail right now. Paul will commend them for their faithfulness. He'll encourage them to be of one mind, to love one another, to help one another. He writes to them to assure them of his own well-being. And he warns them about having confidence in their own righteousness, righteousness by attempting to keep the law. That's a common theme throughout Paul's epistles too. Remain in grace. Don't get legalistic. Don't fall into the you know keeping the law it's not going to make you better and he warns them of that and i think most importantly like we just read in those first few verses if you might remember he expresses his own personal love and affection 
his yearning for this. He says, I yearn for you. And expresses his sincerest gratitude for their love, their fellowship, and support of his ministry. And it's really a very touching letter. You know, these, this church 12 years later, as it's grown from the foundations that we talked about, has continued to, to support Paul in his materially. They've prayed for him, but they've also been sending him money is the idea that we get to, to pay for his expenses. You know, I wonder if 12 years later, I wonder if Lydia and this jailer and their families are still part of the fellowship. You know, I wonder if their kids have grown, grown up in the church and, and even gone on to other areas of ministry or maybe even gone out to start other churches of their own. It's just, you know, the fact that they're still thriving, though, that they still hold fast to the gospel, Paul says, that's what brings me joy, even despite his own difficult circumstances. You know, I've known both sides of this, and some of you have too. I've been joyful to hear of the perseverance and commitment of other believers, and I've been saddened to hear about brothers and sisters that I've walked with in the Lord falling away. You know, also, I know that I've saddened others by the times in my past where I wasn't walking with God, you know, where my life was utterly fruitless. And I also know that I've brought joy to others when they hear I'm still living for Christ, I'm still serving him, I'm still married, I'm still sober, and I'm still not incarcerated. So, well, <laughs> praise God for that. So, you know, I guess I pray, I pray that we could all be those sources of joy. You know, we all have those in our past, those that have been instrumental in our lives that have led us to Christ, those that we've walked with. Man, let's remain those sources of joy to those people and not the sources of sadness. And that's, again, that's, that's another thing we see with the Philippians. I mean, that um, this close relationship that Paul had kind of as their founder, as their father, that he could take joy in where they were at with the Lord right now. But we'll stick down, we're coming to come down, so we're kind of concentrating on these first 11 verses. I'd encourage you, just read through the whole letter. I mean, it's only a few chapters. It doesn't take long. I'm sure a lot of you have, but... Um, but this, you know, Philippians, like a lot of the epistles, has a lot of, of these big verses, these famous verses, verses that you'll see on a plaque in Hobby Lobby, you know what I mean, that, you know, you want to put up in your house or, you know, on the, you know, toilet brush holder or something, or I'm just kidding. Yeah, but this is one of the famous verses that says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it's such a great, hopeful verse. I mean, I know a lot of you know that verse. Maybe that verse speaks to you personally about a time in your life where God was doing something. But I love how Paul can say, in some, in some translations, says, I am certain of this. I am assured of this, that God will complete the work he started in you. And I'm, like I said, I'm confident, I'm assured. And he's assured of their success of their completion, not because of their particular strengths or some sort of, of exceptional righteousness on their part, but because he knows that this is simply a part of God's loving nature, nature. and that's to finish what he starts, right? I mean, that's a part of those of us that have walked with God for a while. We know that God is a finisher, and, you know, I've often told my sons, are they back there? Are they going to perk up their ears? 
I've often told my sons, they can maybe attest to this, that anybody can start something. Anybody can start something. But success comes from finishing. You know, there's plenty of excitement and potential in the beginning. But the true blessing comes from seeing something through to the end. Right? We can agree on that, I think. It's not. The beginning is exciting. You know, when you first met your spouse, when you first got your new job, when you first did whatever it is, there's this excitement, and there's, it is this enthusiastic time, and it's a great time, but the blessing comes from persevering to the end of that thing, whatever it might be. It's true in every area of our lives. Like I said, our marriages, being parents, our areas of ministry, our jobs, whatever it is. And it was certainly true in the life of Christ, who said while in agony on the cross, while suffering for our sins, it is finished. Right? It's finished. And that was why he was on the cross, even looking forward, but meaning primarily that that massive debt that we had was paid in full. But even then, it was when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, when he opened that way for us to follow, that there was this completion to his glorious work. And you just imagine if at any point during his life he had chose to quit. If at any point. If he chose to go live a quiet life in the hills. If he chose to go sail the world and see the sights and to travel. If he chose to just be a carpenter and just simply die of old age, we would all be doomed. And you know, Jesus could have made that choice. I mean, I hope we all understand that. Jesus wasn't obligated to save us. He saved us because he loved us, and he finished that work. He completed that work. If he had quit at any point, at any point, all of his teachings would have seemed absurd, wouldn't they? You know, if he had quit, his miracles would have just been a sideshow. Oh, this guy could do some cool magic tricks. Remember that one guy? And then, you know, he would just be another blip on the radar of human history. I mean, if he hadn't finished, we might not even know who Jesus was. I mean, there's plenty of old, you know, cult leaders and so on that, that litter ancient history that had a certain following for a time and then just disappeared, most of which we don't even know who they were. But thankfully, we're told, for the joy set before him, he finished, and he finished well. You know, back in uh, November, I taught from the book of 1 John and was talking about this attribute of God that um, I think we need to, you know, concentrate on oftentimes, that he's, that he's a giving God, that he's always giving. He never takes. The things that he receives from us are things that we've already given. I mean, been given. He gives continuously, and he's never diminished. There's nothing we can give that adds to or increases himself. Again, he's, but he's always giving. He's always giving. That's God's, part of God's nature that we see as revealed in the Scripture. But this morning, let's look at this other thing. He's a giving God, but he's a finishing God. He's a God that finishes what he starts. You know, and this really goes back to um, creation, in Genesis 2.1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Now the universe was not left incomplete. 
God created this incredibly balanced, intricate, self-sustaining universe. And from the largest gigantuan star to the, of the most immense galaxy to the smallest particle of the smallest molecule, it's finished. It's completed. Now, that doesn't mean that certain processes and things aren't still going on, but we are in a closed system, if you will. No matter has been added. No matter has been taken away. And that this thing is playing out. And, and, you know, we also, we're living in a world that's obviously affected by sin and the fallen nature of things. And, and I don't think we'll understand the extent of that in this side of eternity. But even within that, we see the glory of his creation, this glory of this finished work that he did in the world, how it sustains itself and renews itself and just this incredible work he did there. Now, can you imagine the chaos if he would have only left the moon at about 80%? finished left a big chunk out of it or if he left the sun in such a way where it kind of would glitch out every once in a while and we'd have to reboot it or you know and the earth would freeze every so many years and you know I mean just just little things like just the tiniest thing if he would have left undone what chaos would ensue in our world now a lot of you know for a living you know I'm a, I'm a real estate appraiser that's what I do for uh to pay the bills and over the years, I've appraised thousands of homes. I've researched thousands of others. And I'll tell you right now, in my professional opinion, okay, put on my appraiser hat for a minute. No, one of the worst things for a house could be for it to be incomplete, for some aspect of it to be unfinished, incomplete. Now, for instance, it's always better now, if you're having an appraisal done, you have an appraiser come into your house, let me just give you some advice. It's, it's better for you to have a, a dated, maybe kind of funky 70s kitchen, but it's all functional and all there, all your plant. It's better to have that than to go through and say, oh, you know, I don't like this, and start, and start tearing things out so that when the appraiser shows up, there's no cabinets or counters or any of this kind of stuff. That is going to be a huge deal. You're probably not going to get your loan. Now, that's because lenders know, and really we all know, but lenders know that incomplete properties are so severely impacted in terms of their appeal and marketability that they will rarely loan on a property that is incomplete in some way, even if it's minor. Even if it would only cost you a few hundred dollars to finish whatever it is. Let's say you, you wanted a new toilet and you tore out your toilet and... Um, the new toilet that you were going to bring in is on back order, and so when the appraiser shows up, you've got a bathroom with no toilet in it. That's gonna, you're going to have to put the toilet in before they give you any money for your house, even though that's a really pretty minor thing in the scheme of things, because that property is so impacted by its incomplete state that people are going to walk into that house when you have it for sale or whatever, and they're, you know, they're either going to want a huge discount because of that or they're just going to walk the other way and go find a house that is complete. You know, that's what we call the principle of substitution anyway. We won't get into that. But years ago, I appraised this property in Penrose. And it was a bank-owned, it was a foreclosure. And it was a nice, you know, it, it was pretty rough. I mean, it needed some work, but it was a cute little house and on a really great lot, a lot of big trees. It had a lot of potential. And it was really pretty much all together as a house. Well, shortly after, you know, we went through the process of foreclosure and everything, and the, it sold to, uh, you know, a new owner. 
And I drove by sometime later after that, and they had begun this huge addition on the back of the house, because it was a small house. And so they're going to put this big two-story addition on the back, and I thought, that's cool. That's a nice, that's going to be a nice thing. It's cool to see. You know, that's kind of rewarding to go by and see, you know, people doing that, improving the neighborhood, improving a house, and I thought, that's going to be great. Well, you know, a year later I went by, oh, they're still working on that. Years and years go by, and it, it you know, it, they got it to a certain point, and they stopped. And now there's this huge two-story, like, monstrosity on the back of this little house. I mean, I just went by there last week. So it's there. It's there. This has been going on for about seven years or so. And so it's still there, but now they never sheathed it in. They never put a roof on it. So the lumber is rotten. It's warped. It's, it's a huge liability to this house now. Because anybody, and, and I mean, I, I skipped a part. What I noticed when I went by there last week was there's the little paper in the window now. And that little paper usually means that it's been foreclosed. It's in that process. It's been taken from those prior owners. So these people, they bought this home, and they probably had some great intentions. This was going to be their dream home. And they, they spent all this money. They, they planned it, and they bought the materials, and they got it there, and they started framing. There's a slab out back, and they, you know, they, I think they even took the siding off the back to you know, kind of work with the, the addition and everything. But now what was going to be a great asset for this home is a great liability. You know, it's going to severely impact the sale of that home because you're going to have to tear it all off. You know, it's all, it's, it's all for nothing. All that work, all that planning, all that time, all the expense, all the labor, all that stuff is all for nothing. And really, it's worse than nothing. I mean, they would have been better off if they would have never started on this, right? I mean, I think I've seen situations like this many times where people spend a lot of... I, I remember another house where... These people bought this big house out in the, um, on some acreage out south of Florence, and they built an immense building out there. I mean, this building must be like 50 by 100. It's this huge warehouse building. It's all insulated, and it's this, you know, it's this great, it's got a concrete floor. It's this incredible building. I mean, you look at it, it probably had to cost $100,000, and then they lost their house, and I think if you hadn't have built the building, think how you could have paid so many payments on your home. But they had such good intentions, you know. They saw the potential there, and they went into this. And guys, that's what really, that's what our walk with God can be like if we quit. And that's the point that I'm getting at. God is not like that. God is a finisher. But I see people who, through procrastination, laziness, discouragement, or whatever, Sometimes even, you know, circumstances beyond our control that never finish. You know, in the business world, in the sports world, we're having our fantasy football tournament again. I'll pitch that again, so since we're on it. But we hear the term in the business world, in the sports world, execute, right? You've got to execute. And there's certain people that are great, talented, intelligent, wonderful people, and they can't execute. They can't finish. You know, you, you uh, see these interviews at the end of the game sometimes and says, well, why did you get blown out by 40 points? You know, I mean, that's, they don't say it that rude because they don't want to get, you know, kicked out of the locker room or whatever. But what happened out there? What happened? Why did you lose so bad? We just didn't execute. We didn't execute. We didn't do what we started out to do. 
for some reason, something got in the way, and a lot of, I mean, obviously there's another team that's involved in that, but they, they couldn't execute. And again, God is a finisher, but are we? Now, Paul was entirely assured of God's ability, his intent, and his will that the great work he had started would be brought to completion. And you say, why was this? Why was he so certain of this? Now, before we get to that answer, Jesus taught in Luke 9.62. And this is a hard verse. This is a verse that, that really was condemning for me for a long time. So don't go there. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you think, wow, that's harsh. And he was saying this to a guy that wanted to follow him, but he wanted to go take care of some business first. And he says, no, it's either me or nothing. If you, put, if you start this and you turn back, you're not fit. You're not ready. And this verse kind of speaks of regret, of a lack of sincerity, of essentially not finishing what one started to do. And I think of this man, again, I've, I've been this guy. I have looked back. I have turned back. I have backslidden before. So don't be condemned by this because God never, ever, ever, ever gives up on any of us, ever. But we can give up on him, and I've given up on him in the past. So, so, but I think of this man, upon looking at the largeness of the field, or the heat of the sun, or the weight of the plow, he realized what he thought was going to be a walk in the park was going to be something that he was unable to bear. And I th- that's like this house I'm talking about, this addition, this thing, this project that they, that they were so enthusiastic about. When it got difficult, when things got tough, I don't know their circumstances, but for whatever reason, they had to quit. And I think the reason we can feel like this is we fail to understand or trust just how capable and loving God is. In fearing the field, we lose faith in God, and we shrink him down to our own abilities. But when we put our faith in him, the field seems smaller and the sun is not so hot after all. And I think really the main difference between the one who wants to let go of the plow, who wants to look back, and the one who will experience completion is simply faith. It's just faith. It's faith in knowing who God is, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he is able and willing to complete the work that he started in you. You know, I don't care how strong or how gifted we think we are, if we think we can plow alone and finish the work of God, it won't be long until we look back and are discouraged and distracted and alone. You know, I think the most tragic thing about walking away from that plow is that you'll miss out on all the harvest, right? (laughs) I mean, that's why you start to plow to begin with, because you're investing in something for the future that you're going to see this great harvest. But if you quit before you start, you don't get anything, and all the effort that you put into it, it's all for nothing. You know, that fruit, again, Paul writes in verse 11 of this, that his prayer is that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, again, I ask the question, why was Paul so certain that this work that God had started in Philippians 12 years ago, that God was going to bring that to completion? And in verse 7, 
He tells us, he says, because they're partakers of grace with me. They're partakers of grace. And that's, that's really it, isn't it? That they were active recipients of and dispensers of God's amazing, boundless grace. You know, Paul, despite so many hard times, so many trials and years of hardship, of deprivation, he knew that they served the same God that he served and that God had seen him through all of those things and God would see them through too. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to be doing prayer this morning. So I'm just, uh, I won't call for the worship team quite yet. Justin's, he's looking. Stand by. So <laughs> verses 9 through 11 are essentially one sentence. So I'll just read those again. And it is my prayer. Remember that prayer that he says he offers up with joy every time he thinks of these guys? This is the prayer. This is the summary of the prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, excuse me, to the glory and praise of God. So that's this prayer that he has for the Philippian saints. Number one, that their love would abound more and more. And that's where it starts. A passionate love for Jesus Christ, and that's, let me tell you, that's the easy part. I mean, who can't love Jesus? I mean, we know people, if you know him, you love him. Jesus is amazing. He's perfect. He's everything. The second part for me is where the challenge comes in, a coinciding, and I would say an equal love for one another, for his people. Man, because that's like, I mean, it's like ham and eggs from the south or something. I mean, it's, you can't have one without the, I mean, it is, it's peanut butter and jelly. It's love for God and love for his people. And you, there's a lot of people out there, man, that go around and think they love God. And the apostle John said, if you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar and you don't love God. And so there's that completion that has to come with that. A passionate love for God and a coinciding deep and sincere love for one another. The second thing he says, with knowledge and discernment to approve what is excellent. And this is where the world gets that love a little squirrely, doesn't it? Because that love that we have for God, that we have for one another, must be consistent with the gospel and the authoritative word of God. You know, love isn't acceptance of every kind of sin and everything out there. It's not condemnation either. You know, it's love for them where they're at, certainly, but it's, it's got to be with knowledge, with discernment, to love as Christ loves, not as the world loves in all their confused philosophies and broken morality. His love excels all others in every way. I love that verse where he looks at the rich young ruler and it says, he looked at him and he loved him. And he said to him something really hard. You've got to go sell everything and come follow me because you're too attached to it. But it says that he looked at him and he loved him and he said this really hard thing. And sometimes that's where we've got to be. That's that love, that's that knowledge and discernment. The third thing, pure and blameless for the for the day of Christ. Who in here is pure and blameless this morning? <laughs> okay, that's a trick question. 
Man, if you've asked forgiveness, you are that. I mean, none of us want to think that about ourselves. But I've been, uh, because we know ourselves, right? But that pure and blameless, without fault. And I've been studying through the Song of Songs in my own time. And really, not a, not a book that I've ever really spent a lot of time in. I've read it before. I've heard some studies on it. But really kind of wanted to dig into it. It's such an enigmatic book. And, you know, it's basically a love poem. But it also has all these other levels of, of representation of our relationship to God. And God's love for us. And what it, what it looks like for us to passionately love God. And... There's this verse in there, you know, we, we look at ourselves sometimes and we think, I have this sin and, and I have these problems, I have these weaknesses and these struggles. But there's this verse that I've uh, committed to memory, Song of Solomon 4.7. It says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And it's this idea that God looks at us through Christ and he sees us pure and blameless. When we've repented, when we've come to him, when we've availed ourselves of that grace and that, that forgiveness that he offers to us, that we would be pure and blameless. And finally, the last thing he says, filled with fruit to the glory and praise of God. The worship team can come up now, I guess. We can get the prayer started here in a second. But as we talked about, we can't be fruitful if we never start to plow. Right? If we put our hand to the plow and things get difficult or things aren't what we expected and we quit, we're not going to reap that harvest. You know, There's a verse in Hosea that says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. you know, we sow and we reap. But we won't reap if we don't keep our hand on the plow. I'm not even a farmer. Scott's back there. Do I have this even close to right? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I've tried gardening. But guys, man, don't take your hand off the plow. Trust in God. Put your faith in him. He will complete the good work he started. But it all starts with love. And that's really the way any great work of God has started. And that's the way any work of God will ever be brought to completion. So I'll say a quick prayer. These guys are going to do some songs. We're going to have some guys up front. If you have something that you'd like prayer for, come up and, uh, and be prayed for. Whether it's physical, material, whatever's on your heart. Somebody else that you want to lift up in prayer, come up and be prayed for. So God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you... Use men like Paul, this great evangelist, Lord, who wrote, who served you through all the difficult trials, who got to know you so closely, who was so wise and so um, just an amazing man. But, Lord, we know that he was nothing apart from you and that he was a man like us. And I pray, give us a heart like his to serve you. Lord, give us a heart to pay attention to what you're doing in the world around us, in our own lives even. Sometimes we're just oblivious. Help us to love those close to us and to not take them for granted. And Lord, I just pray you bless this fellowship and use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.